Hey, welcome back to the Scatter Joy Podcast. My name is Zach Thompson. What's up, family? I'm AP. Hey, today we have Gloria Umana on. She is the founder of the Hope Booth. The Hope Booth is an interactive experience. They take these old phone booths that are pretty much extinct everywhere. Everyone's got cell phones now. So they take these old phone booths, they put uh, an interactive screen in there and they have these artistic messages like spoken word messages of hope and joy and faith and healing and all these things wrapped Incredible. into one for people to experience on the street. The pandemic can't cancel out the power of creativity and that's when our team just kind of started feeling like it was time for us to pivot from the stage to the streets. What would it look like if we used our creativity to impact people where they were instead of expecting them to come to where we are. And so that's when we heard that the average person living on the streets goes three to six months without being looked in the eye. And so we just kind of went on this huge journey of what can we do in a very unconventional way to make people feel seen, but to spread hope again. Um, And that's where the idea of the Hope Booth came about. This podcast is brought to you by The Scatterjoy Project. The Scatterjoy Project is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on mental and emotional health. Since launching in January of 2021, we've helped people jump over hurdles that get in the way of their own healing journey. The first hurdle being the negative stigma that accompanies mental health. The second one being the overwhelming search for mental health care. And the third, the cost of mental health care. If you, a friend or a family member are searching for a therapist, a counselor, support group or other mental health care programs you can do so on our website at the scatterjoyproject.com also if you feel inspired to give to our cause you can do so as well on our website the scatterjoyproject.com slash donate you can now text the word scatter s-c-a-t-t-e-r to 741-741 to get connected to free 24-7 confidential crisis counselors in an instant. Crisis doesn't just mean that you're experiencing suicidal ideation. This is for any painful emotion that you experience at any part of the day. And once you text SCATTER to 741-741, you'll be connected to a certified crisis counselor that will introduce themselves, ask about your situation, and listen. They will invite you to share at your own pace. The goal of any conversation with a crisis counselor is to make sure that you're in a safe place. Sometimes that means just talking through things and having them to listen to you. And sometimes that also means them referring you to further help. Help us scatter the news that you can text SCATTER to 741-741 and get connected to the help that you need and deserve. Hey, welcome back to the Scatter Joy Podcast. My name is Zach Thompson. What's up, family? I'm AP. Today we have Gloria Umana on. She is the founder of the Hope Booth. The Hope Booth is an interactive experience. They take these old phone booths that are pretty much extinct everywhere. Everyone's got cell phones now. So they take these old phone booths, they put uh, an interactive screen in there and they have these artistic messages like spoken word messages of hope and joy and faith and healing and all these things wrapped Incredible. into one for people to experience on the street. And uh, and I just love the name, the Hope Booth. Gloria, thank you so much for, for jumping on here today with us. Yes, I'm excited for us to get to have this conversation. It's been a second since I've seen you guys, which was back in, was that April? uh when did we do that the community over everything over event everything. that was early june early june oh, we were june. up here in columbus <laughs> nice <I'm sorry. laughs> i don't know what month it is <laughs> hey but we uh we collaborated uh during our community over everything event uh which was our mental health awareness event and theme and we had the hope booth up and you're in your team uh to put the hope booth at the event to have the people of columbus experience it and like I want to mention, you guys have taken this to how many different states now? Because you guys just got done with another like mini yeah. tour, right? I think we're at like maybe 24 now. Wow. 24 states and yeah. England, correct? Yeah. And London, England. Yeah. Like, and so they're taking taking this uh, this goal that people can be seen to all across the, the country. Gloria, what 
you know, to people listening, obviously we know a little bit about it from like our work in the past together, but like the goal behind the hope booth, what is the, the main goal and how was this like spurred on into your imagination? Yeah, for sure. First of all, that's a loaded question. Loaded. You don't know. It is, <laughs> but I'll kind of start with, I guess I have to go back in time to 2020. Um, I think that's kind of the year where either the most impactful ideas uh, kind of came to be or ideas that weren't as impactful died. Um, and I think we saw that through a lot of different organizations and things beginning and starting, but then things not lasting. And so in 2020, I was leading a collective of storytellers and we would often travel to go and help tell for-profit organizations and nonprofit organizations their stories in unique ways through openers with spoken words and some storytelling elements. And our main way of doing it was on stages. And in 2020, all of our events got canceled naturally. And I began just thinking to myself, well, what does like moving forward look like? Like surely a pandemic can't cancel out the power of creativity. And that's when our team just kind of started feeling like it was time for us to pivot from the stage to the streets. What would it look like if we used our creativity to impact people where they were instead of expecting them to come to where we are? Hmm. And so that's when we heard that the average person living on the streets goes three to six months without being looked in the eye. And I remember hearing that for the first time. And to be honest, my heart was broken, shattered, to be honest, um, because I, I live in Atlanta where homelessness is a huge, huge issue here in our city. It's so much of an issue that they've now set into place laws to ensure that we don't even help those who are in need. Like if you're found feeding someone living oh, wow. on the streets, you can get a ticket and can get fined, which Whoa. is so lunatic to me. But I just began thinking about the fact that there's an entire demographic of people who go unseen for a long period of time. And I remember thinking to myself, my own personal story, uh, being familiar with the feeling of invisibility and just the realization that in 2020, as people were experiencing probably the greatest disconnect we have experienced in history, arguably, um, that regardless if you were living on the streets or if you were the CFO of a large company, as we've seen in the last few weeks, um, that you are not eliminated from this feeling of invisibility. And so we just kind of went on this huge journey of what can we do in a very unconventional way to make people feel seen, but to spread hope again. Um, and that's where the idea of the Hope Booth came about. So really our heartbeat and our goal is that these would be, we would call beacons of light all around our cities, all around the world, permanently installed for people to access hope at any time of the day. And one of the biggest things that we've kind of always honed in on is, you know, it's easy for creatives to create something and feel like they are the superhero um, in their city. They've created something that can change the world, but I would be... I would be remiss to not acknowledge the people who have been committed to doing the work of seeing others far before I was even born. There are so many organizations on the ground doing the hard work that's vastly different than what we do, but we do know that these organizations are led by people and people are not available 24 seven. However, technology can be. And so mm. our heartbeat with the Hope Booth being permanently installed around the world, whether that's in prisons and hospitals and street corners, is that we would relieve those who are doing the work um, and come alongside of them as a support system instead of a savior complex. And so really it's in efforts to collaborate with those who care about seeing others and spreading hope in a unique and unconventional way so people could experience hope in times of crisis at any time of the day, any moment of the day, regardless of where they are what they look like, what they believe in. Uh, we just believe that hope should be accessible to anyone and everyone with a heartbeat. And so that's kind of our our goal and our main mission. It's a it's a big one, but I we've said it from the beginning that this is something that is for the community by the community. So it does involve inviting people into a story. It's not something that Gloria and eight others can pull off on their own. It's literally impossible. And that's not something I would ever want to do. I think some of the greatest things that happen on this planet involve an entourage of people yeah. with the same heartbeat coming together. And so that's why I've always loved even partnering with you guys and Scatterjoy. You guys care about the same thing and it's not about 
oh, can Scatterjoy be better than Hope Booth? Can Hope Booth be better than Scatterjoy? Mm-hmm. But it's, okay, how do we come together and how do we spread hope? How do we make other people feel seen? How do we put aside the things that don't matter and leverage our lives for what does matter? And so that's kind of our, our main heartbeat and what we're after. That's so good. We've talked about this quite a bit where it's like, man, we live in such a competitive culture and world right now where it's like, what the problems that we see within the world, like how could they be much more easily attacked and maybe solved if we were willing to work together more, you know? And I think like, I mean, it was, it was the theme of of uh the event it was the theme of our mental health awareness month community over everything it's like what what does that mean it doesn't mean just like building relationships based off of similarities it means building bridges in between differences and like and like working towards the similarity of hope working towards Mm -hmm. the similarity of joy and feeling loved and being seen and all those things and that's and it's super important to have diversity in that community within building those bridges because then we get a different perspective on the right. same issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. We we tell it from a different lens. And the powerful thing about the event, the community over everything with event, we all kind of talked about the same message, but in different ways, stylistically, mm-hmm. creatively, even sometimes performatively. But like it was all the same message, very diverse points of view. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, everyone kind of brings their unique story, their unique background to anything that they're doing or creating or trying to solve or even like serving, like how they serve others usually is tied to like their story. And you were even kind of hinting at it where it was like, man, there was some things in my life or there was a season in my life that kind of spurred on this, um, this feeling or this goal of helping people be seen because I know what being unseen feels like. What was that moment in your life like, um, the feeling of not being seen? Like, can you explain a little bit of that, your personal story, and how that might have inspired what you guys are working to do right now? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. I feel like it's it's genuinely so loaded. I have to go back to 1995 for it to make sense. All the way back. Um, but so I am first-gen Nigerian-American. Um, and my mom conceived me in Nigeria, but had me here in the United States. And when she came over to the U.S. and had me, uh, my stepdad entered into my life when I was around two years old. They got married. I had no idea that this was my stepdad until I was in maybe the fifth grade. And I remember when I did find out, at first, it didn't really bother me because he honestly is incredible. For my older sisters, it was a little bit more problematic because they they knew our biological father at mm. some point in their life. Um, and so there was that gap. But for me, I didn't feel like there was that gap right away. But as I noticed how this impacted my older sisters' lives, I began to almost feel like this should impact me, perhaps. And so I just went on this like internal investigation of why did my father not stay? Like, was there something wrong with me? Was I missing something? Were we not enough? And then eventually that began to creep into how I viewed myself naturally. Our family has such a wide dynamic. So my dad, uh, my stepdad was Muslim for quite a while. My mom was a Christian and he ended up, he was working in the medical field. My mom was working in the law field, making a lot of money. They both ended up leaving both of those careers, decided to follow Christ and began working in the church. What that meant was a massive financial difference within our family. We went from like having everything to having nothing. And when I say having nothing, I mean our family of six, we were living in more motels and hotels than I can remember than homes that I can recall at this Mm. time. And I remember being in the sixth grade and having to go to school, being picked up from the bus at the bus stop outside of our motel is one of the most like, I don't even know how to describe that feeling, but to know that everyone is, they're seeing you, they're watching you, they see where you live. And then this is an area where most people had quite a lot of money. So it was always really difficult trying to figure out as a kid how to even like navigate this financial crisis that our family was obviously wading through. 
But then how to even explain that when my friends would ask Gloria, why, why did you get on the bus at a, at a hotel? And I'm just like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to explain this. And I knew my parents were trying their absolute best. Um, I think being, being immigrants is, is always going to be quite a challenge, especially during that time framing. It was very difficult for them to find their way back on their feet. And so we waded through all of that in general. And I think over time, as I started to get bullied by kids at school, just because of the difference of my lifestyle and theirs, it was like little things. Like I remember one day, I mean, I feel like she's probably never going to listen to this. I feel like I can say her name, but I'll never forget Lucia Tejada. (laughs) One day, Lucia Tejada in the sixth grade, she said to me, why aren't you wearing Abercrombie? And I said, I don't, I don't know. Like in my brain, it wasn't that big of a deal. And she was like, is it because you can't afford it? And in my head, I was like, it's a hundred percent why it's because I can't afford it, but I can't admit that because then that makes me look and feel weak. And so I began to realize that so much of our identity as kids was all in what we possessed. It was all in our materialistic things. It's all in what we could afford and what we had. And when you are a child and you don't have what everybody else has. It does affect you because your brain hasn't reached the ability to properly process that your identity is not rooted into what you have. And right. so for me, uh, because I felt like I didn't have, it meant in my brain, I am not enough more than anything. I think that's the underlying phrase that I think I resonated with. And so as time went by, I got into high school and our predicament was still pretty rough. It was getting a little bit better, but it was still pretty rough ultimately. And the bullying just kind of increased. And I remember at one point, it just was more than I could bear, to be honest, having people consistently say negative things to you about you. And you feel like you can't tell anyone. I think that was probably the hardest thing about that season for me was that I didn't tell a single soul about what I was experiencing because that felt like to expose that felt like walking into another layer of shame. Um, in my brain, I was like, I'm already experiencing one measure of shame. Why would I now impose myself onto more shame by inviting more people into this story of pain? And so I went about an entire year crying myself to sleep every night. This was in 2011. And this was the year that I planned to take my life. And it was really incredible. I think I shared the story at community over everything. It was really incredible how God intervened in that story to save me out of that darkness. But really the power of inviting people into my story is really what changed everything for me. I think Mm. encounters are beautiful and powerful, but it's what you do after those encounters that really makes the difference. And so for me, it was just a matter of inviting people in Um, as hard as it was like our stories are messy. Like feeling unseen is such a it is such a embarrassing feeling because it makes you feel like there is something wrong with you when that's not necessarily always the truth, but I had to come to terms with that. Um, and so I don't know if that even answers your question exactly. I feel like you, you did ask a loaded question, but ultimately um, I think I'm here today because I invited people into that story of what I was going through, what I was feeling, even when I wasn't exactly who I felt like I could be in entirety. I think having to have that level of authenticity in in my story was just like huge and very powerful. Like in, in the grand scheme, I feel like authenticity is as simple as letting go of who we think we are supposed to be in exchange for who we truly are. And so once I had the ability to finally authentically invite people into my story um, and let people in on my feelings, my thoughts, what I'm going through, then I think that's when I kind of experienced a true level of freedom. And I gave people permission to see me. I think a lot of me feeling unseen was me hiding and choosing Mm. not to be authentic. But once I gave people that permission to see me, that's when I actually felt seen for the first time. Yeah, it's so good. I I think like there's, you know, our stories are all so different. There's similarities, but you know, the, the emotion or even the feeling of I'm not enough or people don't really know, like, you know, you talk about the statistics of like mental health and mental illness. It's one in five people struggle in America. And so it's like, gosh, it's, it's probably more because a lot of people fight in silence. Right. And so (laughs) We know the statistic, but there's something about the struggle that still feels lonely. And so what I want to ask is like, how did you 
overcome that feeling and actually like invite people into your story. It's so easy to say like, yeah, you know, like I, I just was really authentic and I truly just like built up the courage to like let people in. But like what what were some things that mindset shifts or things that you did in your life that you were like, no, I people people need to know like what I'm going through yeah. or I need to share this. Like what what were the changes in your life or mindset? Yeah, that's great. So I guess I, I would have to tell this story for it to make sense because this is what was very pivotal for me. It was something that happened in this moment. But on the night in particular that I did plan to end my life, I was at a church gathering and um, I was getting ready to leave after praying a simple prayer. I said, God, if if you if you are real and you care about the state of my well-being, then would you encounter me? And I remember praying that, not thinking much of it. And I was about to leave to exit the auditorium. I put my hand on the door, just about to leave. And the person that was officiating the gathering paused. And he said, there's someone in this room who's getting ready to take their life tonight. And I remember thinking to myself, no, there's just no possible way that like this could possibly be happening. And I just started believing so many lies about myself. Like I was a pastor's kid. I, I was supposed to be perfect. I, there were so many things that I was supposed to be that I didn't feel like I was in that moment. Mm -hmm. And the pressure of the, all of that was weighing on me in that moment. And he said, I know right now you're probably believing lies about you, but I want you to know you're not alone. And I think we hear that statement often, but we rarely see action behind that statement to prove that statement as true. And so he said, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way I'm about to raise my hand here in this room full of people. And he had everyone close their eyes, but naturally, you know, I'm in high school, I'm going to peak. And I did. And so um, he said, all right, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. So count of three came and I looked around the room and there was about 30 other people. I was, I was certain it was going to be just me to raise my hand, but there was 30 other people in the room. And these are people who were like, super popular. These were people who had a lot of money. These were people that you would never thought were struggling. It was such a wide array of people. And so mm -hmm. for me to actually see for the first time, the truth behind the statement, you are not alone was powerful for me because then mm -hmm. I knew from this day on, I know who I can talk to. I know who I can trust. I know who understands where I'm coming from. And I don't have to spend so much emotional energy and mental striving to help someone understand what I'm feeling and thinking. There are yeah. people who already get it. And so that was probably like one of the most pivotal things for me and why it was so easy to be vulnerable and authentic with these people. I think authenticity and vulnerability becomes easier when you're in the right yeah. space with the right people. It's all about trusted people. And these were trusted people. Uh, because of their rap sheet, I could look back and I could know that what they're telling me, they've had to believe it for themselves. It's not just like words where they're trying to like encourage Gloria for the day, but they're giving me like lifelines almost like what has helped them stay alive. These were the words that they were giving me and I could cling to them because I knew like, okay, this, this works. This is not just some like fictitious fictitious word that they're telling me to speak over myself or whatever. And so I yeah. think that was just one of the most, that was probably one of the most pivotal things for me was realizing I'm not alone. And then realizing in the presence of people who have experienced what I've experienced or are experiencing what I'm experiencing, it is safe to be both authentic and vulnerable. I love it. There's so much power in that as well. And I love that shared experience that you have with people that yeah. kind of led to that breakthrough. Like, so as a, I'm a pastor's son as well, um, as a, as a PK, you know, like you, and did you face any pressure in terms of, you know, I have this testimony, I have this story to tell. Did you face any pressure saying like, I have to go the route of ministry. I have to preach. Like I 100% have to do it in this lens. Mm -hmm. Or did you know kind of ahead of time that, Hey, I want to take my story and creatively tell it kind of out of the scope of the, the four walls of the church? That's a great question. Ironically, no. Ministry <sighs> was not even a thought in my mind. And I'll tell you why. It wasn't because I didn't see it to be fruitful, but it's because what I experienced was my parents leaving corporate America to be in ministry and us becoming poor. That yeah. is all my mind could like 
really register. And mm. so I said to myself, I'm going to do the exact opposite to avoid all of that pain reoccurring Absolutely. again in my life. And so that's what led me to uh, become a triple major. And I studied computer science, criminal justice, and psychology with the goal of working with the FBI. I wanted to become an analyst and work in one of the most strategic and prestigious places I could get into because I knew, not because it, not because I knew that it would be fruitful. I didn't really care about that at the time. Um, I knew that this wasn't going to land me in the predicament that I once was. I knew that this could guarantee me um, financial freedom that I wanted. And I wasn't really calculating much about the purpose of my life, the purpose of this story, the impact that it could have. That was just like, yeah. okay, cool. We got through that. We're alive. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I was just yeah. glad to be alive. And I was, I was now so trying to figure out how can I simply survive without ever having to retract back to what I experienced. And so <clears throat> really where I am today, it didn't happen until like it was my senior year of college. I had, I was already our school's spoken word artist and was traveling doing all this, but all of this felt very random to me. I would describe it as like a hobby, but never anything that I would devote my life to until, um, I don't know. The call just became really clear and it was frustrating because I landed the dream job that I was working hard yeah. for. I made it four years doing the difficult thing. I got the internship that was almost impossible to get. And here I am turning it down like for, mm. for something that wasn't perfectly laid out, yeah. for something that didn't have a ton of clarity behind it. That's something that was very ambiguous. Like all of this today uh, wouldn't have came about if I didn't just take that leap of faith and said, okay, I'm going to use this story somehow and I'm going to use this creativity somehow. And I never knew or could have never even imagined it would be to this extent. But I think that's just the unique thing about God is that nothing we go through is a waste. And I'm, I am grateful for that. But I, I am glad that I never felt the pressure of like, I have yeah. to be a ministry. I'm here today because I chose it, not because yeah. I had to. I love yeah. that. And I think that call is frustrating. Like you said, you felt that call so much to create something that you've never seen, right? Mm -hmm. Like people haven't seen Hope Booth, not in this iteration. People haven't seen what Scatter Joy has done and the impact that it has made. So a lot of times yeah. it is definitely scary to, to create something where there's no blueprint to it. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you've never seen somebody be an entrepreneur. You've never seen somebody do this or do that. Yeah. But it, it takes so much faith, but there's so much fruit behind taking mm -hmm. that leap of faith. Yeah, I recently wrote something. I, I uh, turned 33. I officially feel happy like birthday, I'm Zach. In the last, I'm in the Man. last uh, last year of my early 30s. Once 34 hits, then it's all downhill. I heard. No. Done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote something. I was kind of reflecting on on my birthday, and it was this thought of like, there's no correlation between an easy life and a good life. Like the yeah. hard, there's a quote, uh, there's a quote in a movie, um, that says the hard makes it good. And, yeah. and I think like, it's really, it's really hard to, uh, realize that and analyze it and kind of like come to grips with that while you're in the hard, like while you're, while you're in the, the season of the deepest, darkest places of mental health, while you're in the seasons of like grinding for, an opportunity or creating something that's brand new. Like you don't really know that until you get these like peaks and valleys of like, uh, like the fruit of it or like the healing of it, or you get to experience like the joy of it in between. And so I just love the fact that it's like, we're not really called to live like an easy life. Like we're called to live a good life and, and the hard makes it good like if we pursue and are consistent through the hard that's yeah. when we get to the good and and the relationships and the vulnerability and the strength in our story that we can now communicate like that is the fruit of the hard and so you were talking about like this continuing this continuation of your story where it was like man i got i got through that i didn't think i needed to use part of that story for what i was about to do like i i thought it was just like cool i'm a, i'm alive now is that feeling of like being unseen or that feeling of like i'm not enough like did that stay with you even though like maybe the suicidal ideation had 
left, but did that feeling of like, man, there's still something that, you know, people might not get about me or I don't feel like enough or, or maybe I have to prove something. Did that stick yeah. with you? Yeah, that's a great question. I honestly feel like there were periods of times where I was more aware of that still being in my story, that questioning of, am I enough? And then there were periods in my life where I wasn't as aware. I don't think it necessarily disappeared, but I think I was more so distracted in those moments of life or just maybe more so busy. But I think um, the more I kind of learned more about myself and learned how to sit in the quiet place and hear my chaotic thoughts and just like lean into them and listen to my most innermost parts that have yet to be healed in totality. That's when I do hear a lot of these things that I resonated with 11 or so years ago. And so I don't think it's a matter of um, these things completely disappearing all the time, but it's us more so knowing how to bracket them in the name of endurance and knowing like, mm. okay, there are going to be days where I am going to believe things that are not true. It doesn't mean that I have to give them total control over me. It doesn't mean that they have to have total power over me. And so I think I, I would say a healthy mind likely every once in a while does have these thoughts, but knows what to do with them. Yeah, and so yeah. I think in the past, I could say when I didn't have a healthy mind, I had no clue what to do with these yeah. things. I would like lock myself in a room and just begin to believe I'm the worst person in the world. I'm never going to be enough and start relishing in these moments. But now when these thoughts come, I, I can acknowledge them and I, I hear them and I, I acknowledge why I might be feeling this way. But then I remind myself, that's not who I am. Like I know who I am and I can confidently say that. And so I do think I now have learned what to do with these things when they make themselves present. But I don't know if I can confidently say that they will ever 100% dissolve and go yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like we have like two sides of Gloria. Like there's a side that's like, um, like a striver, very academic, got all the, you know, internships, landed the job. And then you're also doing spoken word, which requires like a bit of creativity. What was the crafting like? And what was like the, the mindset when it comes into developing like what Hope Booth is and what it will be like? What was the curation of it? Yeah, for sure. So this started in the second grade. I had always had a love for writing and storytelling in general. They would always ask us, like, when you grow up, what do you want to be? And I would always say two things. I don't know why I said one of them, but I would always say, I want to be an author or I want to be a police officer. No clue where a police officer came from, <laughs> but I was very confident it was going to be one of those two things. And I remember my teacher telling me, Gloria, if you want to be an author, you're going to have to start practicing writing and storytelling. So I said, okay. And so I would write every single day and fell in love with the art of telling stories, whether true or untrue. And I remember entering into this poetry contest in the second grade. And I did this, I did this uh, contest, did this poem that I absolutely loved. I thought it was genuinely great, but I'm also second grader. What do I know? <laughs> and my friend says to me, Gloria, that was the worst poem I have ever heard. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta find that poem. We gotta, we gotta, find we it. gotta. I have to find it. I remember who she is, but I won't say her name. So <laughs> I remember, nice. ironically, um, something that occurred in that moment that I didn't realize occurred in that moment until I was in college in my sophomore year when I uh, got on this uh, like improv team. We would write spoken word here and there. I didn't write from the second grade all the way until my sophomore year of college, unknowingly realizing that it was because of what someone said to me hmm. about my craft, about my creativity. And I completely, I completely allowed creativity to die within me. Like I didn't even realize how powerful people's words are or could even potentially be. I remember reading this book and this is how I discovered that all of this happened. In the book, the author says, everything that everyone says to us is either an arrow of, um, it's an arrow that's going to inflict you or it's an arrow that's going to spur you forward. And it has you do this exercise and it says, think about something that you used to love as a child. What was the arrow that inflicted you that stopped you from doing that thing? And I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And I was like, whoa, I remember I used to love storytelling 
in writing. And though that simple statement that that one person said to me in second grade somehow had enough power to stop me from using any form of creativity for so many years. And this was the thing that my heart loved so deeply. And so I remember um, in college, finding that love again and growing in that love again and realizing like, man, I've already, I already allowed this to be stolen once. I can't allow it to be stolen again. And so I was very protective of my creative pursuit and my creative endeavor. And it, it made it very difficult for me to invite people into the processing with me hmm. um, because I was afraid, well, what if they say X, Y, Z, and that stops me again from it. But then I realized, like, I think as you grow as a creative, uh, you also grow in being vulnerable with your art. If your art is never shared, your art could never impact anyone. And so I finally allowed more people into that that processing, that story, and that layer of my story. And in 2020, when I was kind of thinking through the Hope Booth, I had only met with one person on our team consistently every week for about six months. I didn't even, I was still subconsciously purposely not inviting the rest of the team into this thought process because of the fear of what if they shut it down? What if they, what if they think it's not good enough? What if they say things that's going to make me go back into this downward spiral and never create again? Just very outlandish thoughts, to be honest. And I remember finally letting the team in on the idea. And really I just had one like dimension of it, but to see how, they came alongside of me and added layers to something that was just 2D. It suddenly became 3D and then it became 4D and then it became reality. And I think that is like the beauty and power of inviting people into your processing, into the work you're doing, into those creative spaces, those difficult spaces, because I couldn't confidently say that the Hope Booth would exist today if it was still just me. Like I, I think it would still be an ideation stage. And I think there's just so many really impactfully creative and unconventional ideas that are sitting in people's brains because they refuse to allow other people in because of fear, because of insecurity, because of all of the different factors and variables that come at us in life. And so my hope really is just that people would get out of that, completely get out of that because there are people that need intervention. There are people that need encounters or people who need their lives to be reached and saved and you have the answer inside of you, but it can't stay inside of you. It has to come out eventually. So right. Yeah. So like I'm, I personally, for the longest time, have struggled with doubt for so much of my life from, you know, like, is this, is this project good enough? Or is this idea mm-hmm. good enough? Or is this event good enough? Or all these different things. I still struggle with that. I think doubt is actually a beneficial thing because like doubt kind of creates some sort of like level of ingenuity. I think like mm-hmm. if there's a healthy level of doubt, but yeah. I think like I've always played the yeah, but game in my own mind. Yeah. And then when I actually opened up about like my creativity or like the ideas that I had, there was a bunch of people that were saying yes. And like, mm-hmm. it's a, that's like fuel on the fire for like an idea is like yeah. someone to say, yeah. And this like, yeah. And mm-hmm. this, and, and here I was like trapped in my mind and in yeah. my heart, like, yeah, but what if they, you know, it's like such a different, game changer and i love that you brought up like the hope booth where it's like the the doubt is sticky but the goal is also like to make hope sticky like the goal is to make the product and the interaction and the encounter sticky with the hope booth so far what have been some of your like favorite experiences and maybe stories that have come out of these uh this tour and and uh, people experiencing what you've worked so hard on. Oh goodness, there are so many stories that come to mind. <laughs> I think our first one that comes to mind is when we were in London for the debut of the Hope Booth. We did uh, what we call a live experience outside of the London Bridge, and we had a, quite a good number of people come by. And there was a child. This might have been the first child to experience a hope booth. It was a child and a father that came by. The child was about seven years old and really was begging his dad to let him try it. And his dad was saying to us, I, I don't know because my son's autistic and he has ADHD. He literally can't sit still for more than wow. 10 seconds. This might just be 
a waste of time for us. And he was like, dad, please, please, please let me try it. And so we're all just like, just let him try it. Like push comes to shove. He throws the headphones on the floor. We're okay. And so, um, his dad finally lets him try it. And sitting there watching this kid truly immersed in this experience, not moving an inch for all three minutes of the experience, watching the dad just in awe of his son in that moment, I think was just like, so special for me. And at the end of the experience, the little boy said, dad, can I do it again? And his dad was like, I have never seen my own son this calm for a long period of time. And the kid said, I just felt peace. And I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. the goal that like amidst all of like the chaos and craziness that people would find a pocket of peace just for three minutes, just for a small moment in time. Because I think we just aren't in such great need of that. And there's been so many stories that are impactful. Like for example, when we were on the tour uh, this past March, I think this might be my favorite story from the tour. It was at um, our first stop in Nashville. And I remember being in the RV as everyone's kind of loading out. And this is where that doubt kind of came. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, did I just like trick us all into doing this and like thinking this is gonna be impactful? Like, what is a phone booth gonna do for anybody? Like, I'm thinking every possible thing there is to think. And I just suddenly had so much doubt and I just began wondering like, is this gonna be truly impactful or is this just another cool creative thing? And I remember coming out of the RV we're out of college campus and it's maybe the third person to experience a hope booth. I, at the time had our iPad and the iPad has kind of one of the camera angles that we use to tell the stories. And I'm noticing this girl just in tears in the first like 20 seconds. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's going on. Uh, I know everyone has such a layered story. And so I knew we were going to get to hear her story afterwards. And she was truly trembling at the Hope Booth, tears in her eyes, just flowing. And afterwards, we asked her just about her experience. And she said, you know, it was about a year ago today that my mom died by suicide and her name was Hope. And so this just brought her to life for me. And we all like sat there amazed because we were just like, First of all, we don't believe in coincidences, but we also think about the fact that like we were exactly where she needed to be. Like Mm -hmm. it met her right where she needed it, right how she needed it. And it was just so special that we would experience that on day one of 30 days. And so that was another story that really just compelled me. And then I remember being in Dallas. This is another story that I will never forget. Uh, There was a homeless man um, that was roaming the streets and we went up to just talk to him and hear about his story and ask how we can help and serve him. And just the way he was so downcast left me so distraught. Like I, I think I'm, I'm easily moved by the feeling and emotions of other people, especially really since beginning this work. And especially because those living on the streets was our inspiration for the hope booth in general. I remember asking him like what what can we what can we do like what do you need and he was so downcast he couldn't even answer like our questions or anything and his name was Kyle he told us a little bit about his story and um 2020 was when everything changed for him as it did for a lot of people Kyle had been 10 years in corporate America making over a hundred thousand dollars every single year was financially um, successful, had a great career, great family. And suddenly the pandemic made him lose his job and everything just kept crumbling down. His mom got very sick and had no clue how he was going to take care of her because he no longer had money. But every money that he had, he was using to take care of her instead of himself, which landed him on the streets. And he said to us, I just feel invisible. And every time I say those words, I get emotional because I know what invisibility feels like it has the ability to completely take you out. I've seen it happen time and time again. And so as I'm sitting here talking to Kyle, like sure, we have so much happening with the booth, but this is when our team had this aha moment. And this is where we start saying it's bigger than the booth. Like, yeah, the booth is powerful and it's really impactful. But one day we hope that we don't have to rely on a hope booth to do the work of seeing others. And so in those moments we got to really engage um, with Kyle and remind him of his identity, remind him that he is seen and valued. And as we were kind of leaving that interaction, he said, you have no idea how much I needed this. 
this is what I needed to continue living today. And I think about the fact that there are millions of people roaming our world who are in need of an encounter like that. Maybe it'll be the hope with experience, but it could be you instead. Like we could be walking carriers of hope. Like that's the whole goal right there. And so that was one of the most impactful stories um, for me to this day, because that's when we kind of adopted that phrase of bigger than the booth and deciding to carry the heartbeat of seeing others. Because it doesn't matter where we are or where we go, like we have the ability to spread hope, like with our own presence, Um, not to look away from people or begin to think about someone's life based off of how they look and assume that they are not in need of hope. Uh, That's why we always say, like, regardless if you're living on the streets or you're the CEO of a Fortune 500, everyone is in need of hope and you have the ability to give them the opportunity to experience it. And so that's that's a story that kind of just shifted me a little bit and shifted our whole team ultimately. It's powerful. Yeah, it's like the ultimate goal of any of this is like to inspire and encourage people to be really intentional with their time and like their relationships. And, and I think like I had a mentor, gosh, I don't know how many years ago it was, but he said, impact takes intentionality. You can't like you, you maybe, maybe there's a a story of someone accidentally impacting someone in a positive way. But I think like the positive impacts, like the positive interactions always start with someone being like uber intentional with how they saw someone, smiled at them, acknowledged them, held the door open for them, said their name, like called them out. And and so I think it's like, gosh, like it doesn't have to be the Hope Booth. It -hmm. is the Hope Booth and it's amazing. It doesn't have to be Scattered Joy. It is Scattered Joy and it's awesome. But like the goal of, both of what we're doing is like to equip and inspire people to make sure people feel valued and seen and loved and heard and to live in a way that is bigger than themselves. Like recently we were talking um, about like me, AP, a couple other of our board members with the Scatter Joy Project. And we were like, yeah, okay, we've been around for like a year and a half. Like it's really been amazing so far, like cool, like we've done this, this, and this, this is our mission statement, all these different things. And we were like, but what are like the specific problems in the world that we want to continue to try and solve? Yeah. Like what are the problems that we want to continue to work on? And we kind of identified loneliness, selfishness, and hopelessness. And it's like, we, we think that those three things are kind of like gasoline on the mental health fire. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, how can we bring people together? How can we inspire people to act in a selfless way? And then how can we spread hope to yeah. I love to it. steal your terms and scatter some joy? You know, it's that. like, that's, awesome. that's the goal. Yeah. And as you were talking about your, your favorite moments, one of, I got two favorite Hope Booth moments. There was a guy who <laughs> was like, when we were in Columbus, kind of like a rougher dude, you know, tatted up looking dude came by and, um, was skeptical normally when people see it normally when people are approached by a stranger on the street nowadays unfortunately it's like nah like it's like i don't don't want to sign up i don't want to buy anything anything. yeah i don't want a subscription i don't want anything so that's kind of how they came up and then he he put the the headphones on and was like emotional and i'm looking like dead and like I'm observing him like a creep, but I just wanted to see the impact, but just because I know how impactful it was and just to see his demeanor, just kind of like, like a calm came over him. And for some reason, when I see men like get moved, it moves me (laughs) like, cause I'm like, it takes a lot for us to open up for anything. So that was an incredible moment just when we were able to see that. And then I'm not sure if it was the same sermon series, but a sermon series that really inspired change and growth in my business and in my mission was um, was called Crazy Faith. And I saw when Mike Todd was, you know, in that sermon series, I think at the end of it, they were sowing seeds in, in people's businesses and in their lives and cars and, and all these things. Um after this series, Crazy Faith. Now, I don't think, I'm not sure if it was the same sermon series, but when we were researching Hope Booth and everything like that, he told me about the event. I saw it on your page that you you guys had an amazing moment with uh, Transformation Church and, and Pastor yeah. Mike Todd. Like, 
Do you mind sharing that like moment and, and how that came sure. about? That was the dumbest day of my life, <laughs> that I can say. Um, so I actually met Pastor Michael Todd maybe like five years ago, very briefly. I would say he wasn't anywhere near as big as he is today, but was still decently big. And I was very moved by his message, honestly. Um, we met briefly, never thought anything of it, never thought I'd ever see him again, to be honest. Still haven't, actually. Um, and I remember last year, no, 2020, I um, it was around December. I, I think this is their, they do a Sunday every year in December where they give. And I remember watching it for the first time ever. They gave like $2.3 million. And I remember sitting there, I was just like, in tears because yeah. I know what that joy has to feel like yeah. for those who were receiving. And these are people doing incredible work. These were also yeah. families. These were individuals. It was such a wide array of people receiving. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I remember praying and I said, Lord, if you could give me some sort of vision that would qualify us to receive something of this capacity wow. in the next year, that would be a miracle in itself. And I wasn't thinking about the Hope Booth because when I told the team about the Hope Booth January after that, we were very much assuming this was five years later, six years later. We weren't thinking this was a this year type thing. Wow. So we didn't even work yeah. on it. We just shared the idea. We thought about it. We're like, oh, this is super cool. Moving along. <laughs> we shelved that. And July came about and we got an invite to be a part of one of the largest art expos in the world, which happened to be in London, England. And we were like, oh, whoa, okay. I guess maybe this is when the Hope Booth can make its debut. Um, and we knew that we needed to have a certain amount of beta users in order to get the right investment that we needed to pull this off on the scale that we see it. And so we we're like, all right, let's do it. And so we go to London, we raise the money for it. This was a lot easier for us to raise. It was $15,000, five of the 15,000, we won in an ideas competition, wow. which was really incredible. Um, so we went to London, powerful. We had so many people all around, really the world say, hey, we want a Hope Booth in our city. We we're like, guys, that's not how it works. We just have our prototype right now. Like we don't have our final concept. It's gonna take way more money to pull this off and we still need time. But we were like, okay, well, why don't we take Hope Booth on a tour, since all of these different people are wanting us to bring it to these different states, maybe we can use that as a way to get some more beta users so that we can get the feedback that we need so that we can create our final concept with accuracy. That's something that's really important for us. And so we crunched all the numbers and we said, okay, we need to raise $40,000. And I was like, frick, I hate fundraising. $40,000? What are we going to do? Like, And our team is about 98% minority. So to give you a little bit more framework of what that means, we don't have access in our communities to a lot of this finances and resources. And so when I'm sharing with the team, hey guys, we've got to raise $40,000 in 30 days. They're just looking at me like, Gloria, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I know, I know, <laughs> but we got to at least give it a shot. And I think our team... I just want to commend them for really the faith and endurance that they have, because there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't be where we are so quickly. It hasn't even been a full year yet since the wow. prototype has made its way into the world. And I will say that part of that is because we have a team that doesn't just know how to dream, but knows how to believe somehow. And mm. when you've got every odd against you, $40,000 sounds like really wicked insane. And like, I remember <clears throat> to do this in 30, 30 days, we had the strategy. And I, I looked back maybe a couple days ago and I found a recording. Um, it was our last meeting before we launched this campaign. And in this recording, we were praying and I prayed and I said, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm certain you will connect us with someone that we barely even know who's going to help us pull this off. Because we're going on this tour, whether we walk or not. <laughs> and uh, ironically, 12 days in to um, this campaign, this 30-day campaign, actually, I'll say 10 days into the campaign, we had our official Hope Booth launch party. We invited our friends, our supporters, our family, everybody to just come and celebrate because we just we hadn't gotten the chance to celebrate just yet. And in our minds, this was going to be also our like 
biggest fundraising day apart from 24 hours into the campaign. 24 hours in, we made, we raised like $2,000, which is like, honestly, crap. It's crap in comparison to what you need to raise in a campaign like that. We needed to have raised at least like 80% of the 40,000 in that first 24 hours, which clearly didn't happen. We raised 2% of it. (laughs) And so uh, we were 10 days in, we had our launch party and at the end of the night, um, my mom spoke up and she said, you know what? Like, I know we're about to end the night, but I just like strongly feel in my heart that God's going to use somebody of really high influence to pull this off. And we all were just like, all right, cool. Noted, not thinking much of it. And the next day, it was a Saturday. I remember pulling up the Hope with Instagram. At the time we had like 200 followers. Nobody knows who we are, what we're doing or anything. And I see Pastor Michael Todd watching our stories and I said, bet, screenshot. And I sent it to our team. I said, guys, something's going to happen tomorrow. So I'm going to stay home and I'm going to watch the gathering. And so I stayed home. I watched the gathering. Ironically, he didn't talk about giving at all. What he talked about was the power of seeing others. And I was like, wait a second. Like, even if we don't receive, this is enough for me. Like just to confirm that the work we're doing is important and valuable. So I'm enjoying myself, to be honest. And then he starts talking about um, when we receive, our natural response is to overflow and give to others. And he starts listing nonprofit organizations. And he's about 25 in. I'm like, he's going to switch category soon. I, I don't know if this is our year. Like... And suddenly there was a glitch on the screen and it was a photo of me that popped up and then it went away. And I said, oh, we're in there. So I grabbed my phone. (laughs) I set it up. I'm thinking to myself, I'm still in the back of my mind thinking to myself, there's no way that this is actually about to happen. Because one thing I know about this man in this church is that they never give the need. They give more than the need. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm already in tears because of so many organizations that have received. And I'm like, dude, I know exactly what that feels like. I'm just thinking about me being in this predicament a year ago. And I remembered, oh no, this, this has to be the moment that we received because I did pray. And I said, Lord, would you give us a vision that would qualify us of receiving something in this capacity? And here I am a year later. And this man is talking about the hope booth and I am sitting there. No, I'm not even sitting. I'm standing and shaking. (laughs) And I'm just like the whole time my body is like jolting. I just, I couldn't believe it. Like I'd never experienced Tears of joy like that, I don't think ever. Like I've I've heard about people talking about the miracles that have happened in their life. It's never happened to me in that capacity. And I remember sitting there just for the first time feeling seen. Like that felt like someone seeing our organization as small as we were, that someone 700 plus miles away somehow saw the work we were doing and said, yeah. I want to come alongside of them. There's hundreds of organizations and churches in my city that have plenty of money that didn't reach out, that didn't, that didn't say anything at all. So it was really cool to see that like in moments where you sometimes feel unseen and feel invisible, there's someone that's watching. There's someone that's committed to coming alongside of you, even if you don't know it. Sometimes we don't know where that help per se is going to come from. But I think the beautiful thing about hope is that we can guarantee that it's coming regardless. And so it was so cool that in a split moment, we went from about 6% funded to 106 plus percent funded. Like in just a split moment, it was just... Truly the most miraculous thing I've ever experienced. No phone call, no email, just (laughs) watching in that moment. And my phone started to blow up. Gloria, are you watching screenshots? Just everything from far field. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a story I'll never forget. And I just have to, I'm sure he'll probably never even hear this, but I have to give a true public thank you to Transformation Church and Pastor Michael Todd, because if they didn't see us and believe in the work we're doing, I don't know if we would be where we are today. And I don't know if the amount of lives that we've transformed and impacted in some capacity could have been reached if it weren't for their generosity. And so Mm. I just feel so grateful every time I think about that story. That's so good. Yeah. Like you said, hope always comes. Joy always stays like that joyful mm-hmm. moment, like that stays, yeah. that sticks with you. And, yeah. uh, and I love the work that you're doing. It's such a creative space. Yeah. Uh, it's such a unique thing to do. 
and I think the best thing about it, just to say it again, is people see the work that you're doing and they, whether they tell you or not, they're inspired by it yeah. and they're going to go act in some sort of like selfish, selfless way yeah. Uh, yeah. in their own lives. Like, yeah. you know, it was, I think one thing that was sticking out to me in that story, it's like, yes, you received this like massive financial gift. And sometimes the gifts that we're equipped to give, like they're not financial, but they're, they're things that we can actually say to someone else to make sure that they're seen. Like you were like, yeah. man, that was, that was a moment where I really felt seen like the organization, all the work that we had been putting in the things that we're planning to do, like what an amazing gift. Like, yes, like this yeah. is amazing. But I think like to, to your point, it's like, man, there's so many other gifts that we can give to other people to make sure that they feel seen. Like my goal every day, like, and I'm not batting a thousand at it, but I want to make sure other people know that I value them. Yeah. Like I want to make sure that someone knows that like Zach is in this life and he's like rooting for me. He's a fan of yeah. mine. And I know that you are doing that same thing and the whole organization is doing the same thing. Gloria, I want to ask this question. You're all about hope. Um, how would you define hope? We've heard some yes. very different uh, <laughs> definitions of this. And yeah. I think it's one of my favorite questions to ask. I just want to get your input yeah. on that. That's a great question. So I have determined that though there are a lot of definitions for hope, um, for me, I would say mine comes from a personal experience and I would define hope as action oriented strength. That's fueled by the belief that though everything may be falling apart, I will be okay. And I think once we can kind of settle into that truth that I will be okay, I can then go out and remind others that same truth. And that's how hope becomes a ripple effect. I love it. That's so Action good. oriented strength. Yeah. I yeah. love that. That's so good. Yeah. It's like, uh, gives me goosebumps every time I hear you talk about your story, hear you even talk about the term hope, uh, just because I think like you've been put on this earth to do exactly what you're doing. Gloria, we, we ask this question to everyone that, that comes on. Um, we're obviously the scatter joy project, honestly, like hope and joy. That's just like a match made in heaven, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. What brings you the most joy? We already know what you're doing to scatter it uh, with the Hope Booth, but what brings you the most joy uh, in your life? Lately, what's brought me the most joy as I'm, so I'm pretty introverted of a person. I, I do spend a good bit of my time, but what I have found so much joy in lately is hosting. I have been hosting groups of friends that don't know each other um, oh, yeah. every month and they've come and they've like, just the way that people just jive when I put them together, I'm like, I sit back and I'm like, <laughs> masterpiece. Like You're the matchmaker. Master. <laughs> like I have to be. Um, and so it's just, it brings me joy when I have friends in so many different stages of life that are saying, I don't have any friends. I don't have enough friends. And I put this random crew of people together and it's like, They've been friends forever. I think sitting mm -hmm. back and seeing that has brought me the most joy over the last few months, for sure. Oh, that's so cool. I think that's one of the things that brings me the most joy about uh, meeting you, about having you guys come to Columbus and be a part of that Community yeah. Over Everything event. Like me and AP were kind of sitting back and we were like, gosh, yeah, hey, you see how Kenny and Kenny Sipes <laughs> and Joel Leon, they're FaceTiming each other and they're yes. posting their screenshots on Instagram. Oh, awesome. did you see how Donovan Beck went down to uh, <laughs> Atlanta? Like... It was, it's so cool for us. We do kind of the same thing that you just kind of described. We like sit back and we're just like, yeah, man, like these people yeah. need to meet like, yeah. and the impact that they can make together is so much bigger than any, any one of us can do alone. And so yeah. I'm just so grateful for you, Gloria. Thank uh, you. so grateful for your yes to, yeah. um, everything that you're doing to the idea and the action behind it. I love and, it. That, uh, that was my, that was my biggest takeaway. The being available and and saying that yes even though the call was so like different you know and like just wanted to urge to everybody if god's given you a gift or there's something deep in, inside your soul people need it like we will we'll be yeah. self selfish to sit on our own gifts because yeah. like you're not just doing yourself a disservice but so many others yeah, yeah. people need yeah. you people need That's you true. 
Gloria, how can um, how can people follow along with what you guys are doing? Uh, how can people yeah. help? And then, uh, yeah, how can they support? Yeah, there's a million ways to support, but I guess to keep it simple, you can go to our website, hopebooth.com and read about what we're doing. Check out our blogs on how you can spread hope and see others in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and then you can follow along on our Instagram. You can watch our documentary. You can join our Patreon. You can give monthly. <laughs> there's a million things you can do. Um, but I'm just, I'm grateful to have just even us in mind. I think having people just thinking about us is one of the biggest things, to be honest. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Go follow them. Go follow Gloria. Your life will be better for it. Absolutely. Gloria, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. You guys are the best. <laughs> Absolutely. Appreciate you. See you, sis. Hey, thank you guys so much for tuning into the podcast. Look, if you like what you heard, make sure you like, follow, and subscribe everywhere you guys get your podcast. Also, to stay up to date with everything we're doing with Scatterjoy, go ahead and give our Instagram a follow, all right? At the Scatterjoy Project. Thanks again for listening. See you guys soon.